Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping law enforcement have better and stronger marriages. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremiah Guile, active law enforcement officer and chaplain. Today, we're going to have a guest who's been with us before, Dr. Meredith Moran. She is a licensed mental health counselor and former law enforcement officer. She's also the owner of Frontline Wellness. Um, if you've been listening to the series, you've heard her on a few episodes back, and we're going to ha- we're fortunate enough to have her on again. Um, and what we're going to be talking about is the early indicators of PTSD. What a lot of people don't realize is sometimes when when PTSD comes, it's not always an instant thing. And um, but we'll let uh, Dr. Moran talk about that. So how are you doing, Doctor? I'm good. How are you today? I'm getting by. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, speaking of PTSD and the factors and stuff, what can you tell the audience about that? So, yeah, there's, I mean, PTSD is pretty, is a pretty complex diagnosis and there's a lot of things that go into it and a lot of things that we like to look at. Um, when we're looking at symptoms and things that we want to be aware of both as somebody who's had a traumatic event or friends and family of somebody who's had a traumatic event. Um, There's a lot of different symptoms and a lot of different things that we can look at. A lot of them are very subtle. And so sometimes it's hard to see early on that there is a problem because of the subtlety. And, And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of reactions to trauma and critical incidents that are pretty normal. And so it's kind of a matter of what's what's a normal reaction and how long is that supposed to last? And then are we moving through it or are we staying stuck in it? Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a good point because you know sometimes uh and again I'm not an expert on trauma. Um you know, that sometimes trauma, you know, people can get symptoms for a few weeks and then it goes away. Mm -hmm. And I know that's, uh, and you could probably explain this in more detail that that's not necessarily PTSD. Is that correct? Not at all. Yeah. I mean, when we're looking at PTSD, you're looking at some very specific, um, criteria. So there's, there's a, difference between PTSD and what we call acute stress disorder. Um, and acute distress, acute stress disorder are those symptoms that happen immediately following the incident. And the difference between ASD and PTSD, some of the differences are looking at onset. So acute, acute stress disorder is going to last anywhere from zero to 28 days after the trauma occurs. Okay. It is the early onset right after the trauma. PTSD, on the other hand, there has to be symptoms at least a month out, consistent symptoms for at least a month out before we can diagnose PTSD. Okay. Um, with that being said is... Is it possible for a person to have ASD and then it evolve into PTSD? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's possible for a person to not have ASD, but then to develop PTSD symptoms a month after the incident. Okay. 
So it's it 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 kind of it becomes very complex when we're trying to diagnose. Um, duration of symptoms is a different is also different. Um, for acute stress disorder, symptoms last between three days to four weeks, while PTSD has to last for a month and can persist for several years. Okay. So with uh, um, with, with that, what's some of the uh, specific indicators? So if someone is starting to go through one of these, whether it's the ASD or PTSD, um, what's some of the things that they might be going through that will help alert them of that? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So when, you know, when we talk about critical incidents and, you know, when I do like a CISM call out and we talk about the idea of right after a critical incident, you may have some symptoms. And again, these are normal reactions to an abnormal situation. So there may be some physical symptoms like fatigue, nausea, headaches, muscle tension, um, confusion, nightmares, not being able to concentrate very well, um, anxiety, grief. There could be withdrawal or appetite or sleep changes. And what we want is to say, okay, yeah, if you're experiencing these things, great, let's, let's monitor them and see if they last. Um, when we get into some of the stronger symptoms, things like disassociation, where now I'm starting to detach from myself, um, where I'm having flashbacks or nightmares, um, I'm withdrawing from people that remind me of the trauma. Those are some of the things that we want to look more closely at because those are some of the things that are characteristic of that acute stress disorder that could lead into post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Um, you know, so as far as with PTSD, I know that you've got – uh, what they call like a, a type one single incident and like a type two complex. Um, is the symptoms uh, and development the same between the two or is it different? Um, well, now technically complex PTSD is not a diagnosis in the DSM. Okay. Um, so yeah, in the, when we're looking at the the diagnostic manual, there is, there is just PTSD. Um, hopefully, as time moves forward, there will be that separation. Mm -hmm. But complex PTSD is what we see that mostly when is trauma from childhood that ranges through our lives. Okay. So childhood, child abuse, child neglect, um, sexual trauma in childhood, those things that kind of compound over our lives okay. that come from childhood. Your single incident are more of the things that we would experience as an adult or as a first responder where, you know, we're involved in a shooting, we're involved in, you know, some extreme call involving the things it is that we see as first responders. Okay. Now, my understanding too, is that type two 
uh, um, or I guess it's not an official diagnosis, which shows that I'm not an expert in PTSD, but, uh, um, I know with law enforcement, uh, you know, we get exposed routinely to trauma, uh, regularly. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, my understanding is that, you know, type two can develop from that. It doesn't have to be necessarily Yeah, tragic. complex PTSD can can develop from that idea of, you know, even as adults were exposed to multiple traumas over a period of time. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, as far as the uh, the early indicators, uh, you know, you were talking about with, you know, thing from appetite, sleep issues and stuff like that. Is it the same typically between um, the single incident and complex? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, or is it like uh, it varies from person to person? It well, it will vary from person to person. Everybody's symptoms, you know. There's we have this whole list of symptomology, mm -hmm. and you know when you look at the when you look at the diagnosis criteria, there's um, let's see one two three four like five different criteria. Okay. And you have to have like one of these or two of these, one of these, one of, you know, to kind of say that, yes, this is PTSD. Okay. Um, so the criterion and the symptoms are going to be the same, but it may manifest differently for different people. Um, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a combat veteran who has seen, Okay, that was a dumb sentence, but if I'm if I'm a combat yeah. veteran, <laughs> yeah. if I've been downrange and seen that stuff, you know, I may be coming into my law enforcement career already primed for mm -hmm. PTSD. Okay. Hmm. You know, if I'm that you know, we see these these kids in the academy all the time, these, you know, 21, 22-year-olds that don't have a whole lot of life experience. My first critical incident could prime me for PTSD. Hmm. Um, or I could come in, again, as a combat veteran, and because I've had that experience and I've learned how to deal with it, the stuff that I'm experiencing as a law enforcement officer isn't affecting me. So it can so it's, it's it can both build up a resistance but also make you more susceptible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can it's you know, it's kind of like that inoculation. You know, we talk about stress inoculation. Mm -hmm. Um that the same as, you know, you get your flu shot at the beginning of the year so that you may still get the flu, but it won't be as bad. Okay. So if I have that stress inoculation if I have that trauma inoculation, I may still be exposed to the trauma, but the symptomology on the back end may not be as bad because I'm better able to deal with it. Gotcha. Now, because I have more tools. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now, is there a way to predict um, if someone is going to be more resilient to PTSD as opposed to succumb to it more uh, through the inoculation? Or is that just kind of a, you never know how the mind's going to go situation? Well, I don't, I think that, again, inoculation based on our history, 
you know, maybe I have survived a lot of stuff as a child or as a teen, and that has given me that resilience. Mm -hmm. So resiliency is very, is, is one of those terms that we use a lot that says, you know, I've seen a lot and I've done a lot and I've built up the, the, the skills to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So the new stuff isn't going to bother me as much. You know, we look at supportive factors and risk factors. Um, if I grew up in a home that was open about problems, that communicated, that taught me how to regulate my emotions on a regular basis, then those are very supportive factors moving into this career where I'm going to see a lot of stuff that our brains aren't meant to see. So what you're describing is uh, having good, positive coping mechanisms and different tools to help you deal with it um, at the time, as opposed to letting it build up. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, but I also think that, you know, again, the great part about our brains and about this neuroplasticity is that if I don't learn those tools, if I don't have those coping skills growing up, because there are families that they don't talk about stuff. They don't teach emotional regulation. I don't come into adulthood with that stuff. I can learn that stuff on the back end. Okay. Um, with that being said, uh, do you have any way of um, maybe giving guidance to help people learn that, whether it's direct them to a, a certain a resource or just tips that you, you know, could give them right now on the podcast? Yeah, I think first of all, you know, getting out and, and, you know, especially if you're in law enforcement, reading, going to trainings that come across, there's a lot, there's a lot of new trainings that come out as you and I have spoken at, mm -hmm. um, that are teaching people emotional regula regulation, um, grabbing, I think, um, Kevin Gilt Martin's book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, that should be given to every academy recruit across the United States. Hmm. Um, therapy. You know, therapy doesn't have to be, oh, I'm in crisis. Therapy can be, hey, I'm anticipating that these are going to be some things that I'm going to run into. How can I deal with them? Okay. Developing a good support system. Um, especially for those of us who are first responders, finding a support system outside of the job, mm -hmm. having those quote unquote civilians who are still supportive because what we tend to do is we tend to insulate ourselves within the community of first responders. And then we, we pass around that trauma. Yeah. We don't, we don't process anything. We just kind of rehash it over and over and over again. And we don't look at each other's symptoms because we're all, it all looks normal to us. Cause we all look, you know, we're all symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's um, you kind of bring up an interesting point because uh, my wife says she hates being with me when we uh, get around other cops, you know, just for lunch mm -hmm. or whatever. Cause she says, all we do is keep telling war stories over and over again. And it, it kind of goes back to what you were just talking about, you know, how we just keep rehashing it and, and you know, um, really not getting away from it. It's almost like we're just holding on to it in like this endless loop. So Yeah. But 
you know, with that being said, since this podcast is, you know, focused uh, overall on marriage, um, you know, uh, your spouse, you know, if you've got that good relationship with a spouse, then, you know, the spouse can be one of your best support group or support, uh, you know, assets. Um, it just, as long as you're not taking out all that stress, frustration, and negative emotions out on the, on the spouse. Correct. And also as long as you are willing to listen and, and really hear when your spouse says, Hey, these are the changes I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, you used to be, very engaged with the family. Now you come home from work, you dump your gear, you go in the back room and drink a beer and fall asleep in the chair. You avoid and withdraw from us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you always seem to be on edge, that hypervigilance. Um, and so with those support systems, the tricky part is that we have to we have to listen when they say this is what I'm seeing because I can see it better than you can see it in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've mentioned <laughs> this on before. You know, I'm recovering from pretty severe PTSD, and that was one of the problems I had is I I, I didn't see it coming, and I was in denial. So as these symptoms mm-hmm. were building, my wife was seeing it. She tried pointing it out to me, but being, you know, us cops always being, you know, kind of prideful, sometimes just downright arrogant. Um, it was always <laughs> someone else's fault of why I was frustrated that day. You know, it was always someone mm-hmm. else's fault of why this was going on or that was going on until it finally just, you know, built up to the point that there was no denying it. And I will say right. that what you said has been one of the best things that's happened to me through the recovery was being willing to listen more to what my spouse is seeing because you know it's hard it's often hard for people to see their own flaws it's hard to see your own symptoms and your reactions but they Mm -hmm. can so yeah yeah and that's the thing because i'm in my own bubble Mm -hmm. so i don't see that you know it's just it's just normal to me that you know oh yeah i'm just a little more irritable because the guy on my last traffic stop was an a-hole, you know, or yeah, I just, you know, I don't want to go out so much cause I don't, I don't really like being in crowds because of this, that, and the other about my job. So it's easy for me to um, defend that stuff mm-hmm. and make excuses for that stuff. And it, and sometimes it's really, you know, again, like you said, your changes were very gradual. It's mm-hmm. it's it's really rare for it to be one day I'm this way and the next day I'm completely opposite. Mm-hmm. So we get used to those changes within ourselves and they become our new normal. Whereas the people around us are like, okay, that's this isn't correct at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you're describing is <laughs> really uh, <laughs> what I went through because um, my whole thing took you about uh, six months ballpark um, from the time, okay. you know, through when it kicked in. So it was very progressive. Um, so, 
but I'm sure listeners don't want to hear about, you know, my, my issues. <laughs> so but, uh, <laughs> I'm just, just I, the only reason I say that's to kind of, uh, you know, to, to kind of let the listener know that, you know, it will happen to anybody. You know, if you're in this job mm-hmm. long enough, no matter how much, you know, mental wellness training you get or, you know, research you do, we're still exposed to trauma and it can affect all of us. And, you know, especially those that are in any type of peer support role, because in my case, I spent a lot of time doing that. And, you know, you mm-hmm. always you always hear about um, how you can absorb some of that, you know, secondary trauma. You can, you know, uh, take on through empathy a lot of that stress that other people have. And it's real easy right. for those in peer support to fill that stress cup up really quick with just other people's stress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there that that idea of um, of and now I can't think of the word. It'll come back to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I and I think again we got to look at at when we're looking at changes. Mm-hmm. When are they happening? How long are they lasting? Yeah. You know, right after a critical incident, yeah, there's going to be some stuff. Our brain has to process that stuff. Our brain has to say that really bad thing happened and we got to figure it out. Um, And that's why when we talk about when we talk about in critical incident stress debriefings, we talk about things like, you know, not making big decisions in the first 24 to 48 hours. Right after a critical incident is not a great time to go, I'm going to quit my job, sell my house and move to Bora Bora. That sounds like a good idea right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Getting plenty of rest, not using drugs and alcohol, giving yourself permission to feel bad. Saying, you know, hey, it's okay that I feel bad about this thing that happened because that sucked. Mm -hmm. Um, Not fighting the dreams or the flashbacks that's our brain processing it will go away in time and then if it doesn't that's where we go okay now let's seek help someplace else mm-hmm. okay so at at what point in time because uh, you know with with these incidents in law enforcement you're always going to get exposed to stuff um, some more mm-hmm. than others depending on where you work at what unit you're in um you know, like I'm in a unit now where our exposure to trauma is much higher than some a previous unit that I was in. But for, mm-hmm. you know, so there's always going to be some of that. But at what point in time should a, a, an officer realize that, okay, this is not just a little short term reaction to the trauma. This is when I need to start getting help or start, you know, getting some kind of uh, counseling or something like that. Right. Well, I would say definitely if you're, if, if symptoms don't improve or if they get worse um, and they're and a month out, you're still, you're still symptomatic. They haven't improved or they've gotten worse. You definitely need, that's when you definitely need to go, okay, I need something going on here. I need to, to and have some intervention. Um, but I think we also need to, make sure that we're checking in with those other people around us mm-hmm. that, Hey, I, you know, what are, what are the people around us saying? You know, are you, am I still acting like a 
you know, an a-hole, mm-hmm. you know, what are they seeing? Um, but definitely if, if symptoms last three, you know, three weeks to a month, then we need to really look at some intervention. Okay. Because so, the brain's not letting go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, a, a, yeah. a lot of officers, um, you know, they're always trying to learn so many different things. Sometimes, you know, they, they like to have that bullet point version of, okay, you know, when I see X, Y, and Z, now it's time to get help. Um, but I will say for those of y'all listening to this, don't be too prideful or too arrogant or whatever to get help. Um, if there's a problem going on and the situation is getting worse, um, I, I think about this as, as like getting a, a cavity in your teeth. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. cavity is going to keep going. It's going to keep going. You can deny it. You can postpone, you know, going to the dentist all you want, but that cavity doesn't care. It's just going to keep getting deeper and deeper until you need a root canal. And, right. And it's going to start affecting the other teeth around it. Right. So when it comes to, you know, getting care in your own mental health, you know, I learned the hard way that it is just like a cavity, it, metaphorically speaking, that mm-hmm. it's going to get worse. It's not going to, you know, once it gets that certain point, then you've got to get help uh, because it's not, you know, putting it off, denying it, whatever is not going to make the situation better. Correct. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and like I said, so acute stress disorder should last anywhere between three to four weeks. Okay. If the symptoms are lasting longer than that, if they're getting worse, then yes, let's look at getting an intervention and, and, and early intervention like that cavity, early intervention with mental health stuff is going to keep it from becoming a problem. Okay. Because, again, like that cavity, if I keep putting off the, if I keep putting off my mental wellness, I'm going to, it's just going to get worse. I'm now, I'm not sleeping. Now I'm fighting with my spouse. Now I'm maybe drinking or drugging to numb the pain. Um, And that brings with it a whole host of other problems. Um. You know, because now am I showing up to work drunk? Mm-hmm. Am I not showing up to work at all? And it's just compounding the problem. Yeah. Um, other things that I've seen in people when they start letting that stress and the trauma build up, you know, of course, one, marital problems. Um, mm-hmm. I sus- You know, I don't have any solid research on this. This is just me talking out of just from what my personal observations and my own personal hypothesis is that. One of the reason law enforcement has such a high divorce rate, I suspect is greatly connected to the amount of trauma that we undergo, especially without treatment and all that mm-hmm. spillover, which is coming in from the PTSD, the, the, the trauma that we're putting onto our spouses who don't understand what we're going through, uh, gets misinterpreted uh, as being, you know, hostility towards them or. Um, or just the stress of dealing with it becomes too much for them. Uh, right. Well, the you know, the last time I was on your show, we talked about that. And it's, you know, if if I come home from work every day and treat my spouse like my spouse and my children like suspects, 
my spouse and my children are not going to put up with that for very long. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, uh, but you know, also, uh, from an organizational perspective, you know, I'm not an organizational leader, but you know, this is cool. something that a lot of them are now having to look at. Um, and you know, if a person's undergoing trauma and they're having all that, that spill that, you know, uh, stress spillover, then how, you know, that's going to work its way into the job on how they interact with coworkers, how they interact with mm -hmm. their supervisors, how they interact with the public. Um, I wonder if a lot of these uh, major incidents where you see, you know, excessive use of force or response to resistance, depending on, on where you're at, because, you know, terminology is used differently, but how many mm -hmm. of these violent encounters um, would have ended differently had the officer not been under so much stress and dealing with trauma. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you because if I'm, if I'm, if I can't emotionally regulate because of my trauma, you know, again, I think I talk, I don't know if it was on your podcast or somebody else's um, about that zero to 10 scale of escalation. And if I'm, in this trauma loop and I'm running at like a seven all the time, but I think that's my baseline. Mm -hmm. It's really easy for me to escalate to a 10 mm -hmm. in, in zero seconds. Yeah. And so, you know, I may think I'm good, but when that, that suspect mouths off to me, that trauma response kicks in and if I can't regulate that because I've, I've not dealt with my past trauma, I'm going to respond accordingly, according to what my trauma response and what my fight or flight response tells me to do, which mm -hmm. is fight back. Yeah. And uh, then that just, you know, becomes a snowball because, you know, I've never gone through an excessive use of force situation. You know, the lawsuits, the internal affairs, you know. Um, mm -hmm. that's just one of those experiences I have not undergone and I hope I never do, but I can't imagine how much stress, worry and everything else comes with that, especially if it's one of these that goes on TV, gets national attention or politics get involved. Um, you know, I, I mm -hmm. couldn't imagine how much extra that would put on somebody. Absolutely. And it's just, yeah, it's just going to compound everything that we're going through. So if we can, you know, recognize those, first of all, recognize those traumatic incidents for what they are, that, yeah, this is part of my job, but I didn't sign up to be traumatized, mm -hmm. and this is not normal. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it is part of my job, but it's not normal for a human brain to have to deal with this stuff. Right. So recognizing that and offloading it before it becomes a problem. Again, I don't have to have acute, I can't have to have symptoms of stress disorder to come to a culturally competent therapist. Maybe I don't want to offload the really bad stuff to my partner because I don't want to traumatize them. And that, that happens sometimes. I don't want to offload that stuff to my spouse because I don't want to, I don't want to put them through that trauma, but find a culturally competent counselor 
who understands that stuff and then go in once every couple of weeks or even once a month and go, here's what I've been dealing with. Mm-hmm. Let me offload all of this stuff to you. So now I can have that clean slate and go back and, and refill that, that cup full of the crap. And then I can go and offload it to somebody who understands. Yeah. I think you make a really good point about that, um, that culturally competent therapist, because, you know, there's a lot of people in mental health right now, but very few of them have the understanding of what law enforcement or any type of first responder go through. Um, I remember right. the first time I ever went to, uh, to to go to a counselor, and this is way before I ever went to school. And, you know, we're going way back. Um, I was working on a child predator unit. So we were exposed to just some really vile stuff. And I could not go or when I went to the counselor, she shut me down uh, partway through the session and said, I can't handle the things you're telling me. And my thought Mm -hmm. was, well, then who am I supposed to go to now? You know, we're going back, you know, 10, 15 years, but you know, there, uh, fortunately there are more people out there like yourself and many others that are becoming culturally competent. Um, But you know, like you're saying, there's, there's some things you just, especially for some units, you just can't talk to people. Um, I got so accustomed mm-hmm. in the child predator unit sometimes because I was always around people who also worked child sex crimes. I would start talking to another cop and, you know, there would be somebody like at a restaurant, someone sitting at the next table over that can hear <laughs> what we're saying. And next thing you know, the person I'm talking to who's a cop is getting freaked out People sitting, you know, (laughs) next are hearing this stuff. And in my mind, I'd been around Mm -hmm. it so much, it had almost become normalized. And uh, Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, that's something to, to, I guess, for for those to think about. And it kind of just goes back to what you were saying. Um, You know, sometimes if it gets too much, other people can't handle it. Or if, uh, in my experience too, and I'm sure you'll probably agree with me on this, if you're trying to go somebody, you're you're talking to someone and it's, you know, you're, the person you're venting to or whatever, and they're dealing with a lot of trauma, that the whole thing can just kind of become explosive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also the good thing about a culturally competent person is that I speak the same language. Okay. Now we may not, you know, we may not use 10 codes. I may not understand when you tell me 10 whatever, but... I, you know, I'm not offended when an officer or a a firefighter comes into my office and it's F this, F that, blah, 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 blah. Hey, go for it. That that's, if that's how you express, go for it. And you might find other therapists who, who may bristle at that, Mm -hmm. but yeah, there's, it's, it's hard as a therapist to, if you're not used to that idea of, Hey, I got to tell you about this call where I had to pick this baby up off the floor of this car and I gave it CPR and it didn't live. And that's really screwing me up. Mm-hmm. But that is the reality of the first responder. And so having somebody who can say, yeah, that sucked. Yeah. And not go, 
you know, oh my God, how do you even deal with that? Well, I don't. That's why I'm here trying to talk to you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So. Clearly, I'm not dealing with it. So, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I guess we're coming towards the end of the podcast. But before we wrap up, is there any uh, last tidbits that you'd like to tell the listener? Um, again, I think just remembering that it's okay to not be okay. We first responders do a very hard job and we see and do things that our brains are not designed to see and do. So take it with a grain of salt and realize that, Hey, I may not be okay right now. And that's okay. I, I can, there's help out there. There's people that we can call. Um, again, if you live in the state of Florida, I'm a phone call away and I do telehealth. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, if they wanted to get hold of you, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, two of the best ways to reach out with me to me, one through my website, which is www.f is in Frank L as in Lima wellness.org. Um, you can book an appointment with me straight through that website. Okay. Um, or they can call me on my cell phone, which is 727-316-0798. That's my dedicated work number. Um, I may not answer immediately, but I'll certainly, if you leave a message, I'll get back to you. Okay. Sounds good. Um, well, thanks for that information and, and thanks for all the info that you've, uh, you've given to the listeners and also to myself regarding this, uh, this topic, which is very important, you know, it's, it's something that has been long overdue as far as our industry starting to, you know, to address. Mm -hmm. So, but, um, all right. Well, to the listeners, um, you know, thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you, Dr. Moram for being on the show and to the listeners Thanks for having me. Yeah. Anytime. And to the listeners, <laughs> remember your marriage is your most important relationship. Um, it should be more important than your job, more important above all other stuff. And, uh, you know, always remember that, uh, remember that your spouse is your most important team member treated as such. Thank you and have a good night.